welcome to today's episode. Today I will be reading Neville Goddard's lecture titled Every Natural Effect. I don't have a date for this lecture, so this is an undated lecture. Neville tells his audience, Every natural effect has a spiritual cause and not a natural. A natural cause only seems it is a delusion of the perishing vegetable memory. We do not remember these moments in time when we imagine certain states. So when that imaginal state takes form so we can see it with the outer eye, we do not recognize our own harvest and deny that we had anything to do with these natural effects that are taking place in our world. Because our memory is faulty, we do not remember. There's a moment in every day, said Blake, that Satan cannot find, nor can his watch fiends find it. But the industrious find this moment and in it multiply, and when it once is found, it renovates every moment of the day if rightly placed. Now, by the word Satan, he simply means doubt. Doubt cannot find it. I desire a certain state in this world. Reason tells me it's difficult. My friends tell me it's impossible. And so, if I doubt that I could ever realize it, that's the voice of Satan speaking to me. He's always challenging God. God is my own wonderful human imagination. That's God. So, the protagonists are God and Satan. Simply faith and doubt. Can I imagine that I am the one that I would like to be and remain faithful to that assumption as though it were true? If I can remember that assumption, and when I did it, then I will see when it happens in my world, the relationship between the natural effect and its spiritual cause. The spiritual cause was that moment of assumption. Now let me share with you what was given to me this past week in the form of a letter. He's here tonight. His barber was a low man on the totem pole when he first encountered him. There were four in the shop. Well, he was a fourth man. If you're familiar with the barber shop, and maybe you ladies do not know, and so the boss always has the first chair. And so, if it's a slow day, he gets the man. By the time he's through, he gets the second one. He doesn't chair it. If three should come in, then they go to the different chairs. While four chairs, the fourth one waits for his customer. Well, this friend of mine one day happened to sit in his chair. And he liked the way he cut his hair and gathered from what he said that he liked cutting hair. He was proud of his profession as a barber, proud of it, not making excuses as so many barbers do. He was proud to be a barber and wanted to be the very best barber and win. Having heard this man express his desire, my friend imagined that he was tops. Well, in a little while, he bought out the boss barber and then dismissed him and rearranged his staff and then, from then on, began to proceed to the top. Well, three weeks ago, while sitting in his chair, which is his now, the boss barber is his barber, for he was a low man, but now he's the top man. He said to him, and in a very exciting way, that there was a contest to be held in San Francisco and he would like to enter this contest for hairstyling and cutting of hair. Well, my friend said when I discovered what he really wanted, and no one goes into a contest unless he wants to win, I saw on the wall the trophy that would be his. 
and I heard him tell me how he won. Well, there were four men in the shop. One was committed for that weekend, and so this past weekend he took with him, or he took two with him. So there were three from that shop of four men. There were only nine trophies given in the state in this competition, and that one little shop won four. The boss barber won first prize, had a second prize, and his two men that went with him each won a second. So they came back from San Francisco, bearing four out of nine. Now he said to me, "You've often said from the platform, I will tell you before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe." Well, now. I'm going to tell you, Neville, before it takes place. There's going to be a contest in Southern California, and I have seen his trophy as the first one on that wall. And so I will tell you before it takes place that when it does take place, you will know that I am putting this into practice. I know he lives by it. Then there will be another contest, said he, in Miami. And one must win in Miami to be eligible for that which will be held in Brussels, which will be international. I am putting him there in Brussels as first among all contestants. Well, I know that he will win, for every natural effect has a spiritual cause, and not a natural. A natural cause only seems. It's a delusion of man's perishing vegetable memory. He doesn't remember. Well, now he will remember what he did. And I have his record at home in his letter. Now he said to me in this letter, "I had a dream. I repeated the dream, and then I had a third dream, all in the same night. So the first and second was simply the same dream, repeated. I do not bring back the details," he said, "of the dream, but it was all about, in detail, strangely enough, about my birthday. But I cannot recall all the things that happened." I only know here stood a man in a white robe with a book in his hand, open in the middle. It was gilt-edged, and he had a quill in his hand, or it could have been a scythe. He looked almost like a cartoonist concept of Father Time, and he was insistent that my birthday was a certain day, and I was equally forceful in stating that it was not, because I knew my birthday to be the nineteenth of September, nineteen twenty-seven, and he was insisting. Over my protest, pointing all the things out in the book, and then I awoke. In spite of his insistence and my protest, for I knew my birthday—at least that was my physical birthday—I'll call his attention to the eighty-seventh Psalm, and the Lord records as He registers the peoples. And He said, "This one was born there. It's all about the birth. There are only seven verses in it. It's a small, short psalm." But this is the birth, not of a physical birth. This is a spiritual birth, and this one was born there. I can say to him, "You did the perfect job, as I knew you would, in challenging the Lord's angel, the recording one, for to sin by silence when we should protest makes cowards of us all, and no coward could be used in this in his stable of studs." I can say from the way you worded your letter that you have been born. But the perishing vegetable memory has not brought it back. You have been born from above. You have had other experiences which would imply an adumbration, but from this letter I would say you have been. But memory has not brought it back. I am convinced of that from your letter, for it's all in the past. It's not present, 
and it certainly is not future the way you worded the letter, for you know your birth date, which is physical, and you said the nineteenth of September, nineteen twenty-seven. And he denied that was the day of your birth. To deny that was the day of your birth would imply you were born in the spirit world, because he represents not the physical world, but the spiritual world. So I would say of you, you have been born from above. So here, take these moments, every moment in time. It's a special moment, a precious moment, a moment where you can actually use it to plant what you want planted in this world. And remembering that moment, well, then it has to come out. For every natural effect has a spiritual cause and not a natural. Well, that spiritual cause is that moment when you dare to assume that you are the man or the woman that you would like to be or that other man, in this case, the barber, that he is the top as he desired to be. So you can do it not only for yourself, do it for another or do it for many as he did. And these are these precious moments in this wonderful world of ours. But our memory fades, and we do not remember. So when the whole thing rises in our world, we do not relate it to our own harvest. We can't remember when we ever did it. But not a thing could happen in my world that comes by accident. It couldn't. All things come because I planted it, either wittingly or unwittingly. I either did it knowing what I'm doing, or I did it not knowing because I was lost in some emotional state, and I felt intensely about a state. It might have been a lovely state or an unlovely state, but the seed was planted, and I will reap it, and the whole thing will come into my world whether I recognize my harvest or not. So if I know this to be the law of life, it is entirely up to me now to select and plant only what I want to reap in my world. So everyone in this world is here for a purpose, and the purpose is to fulfill scripture. There is no other purpose. And the fulfillment of scripture brings me out of this world where I must remain until I awaken. Well, I can't awaken until I fulfill scripture, for scripture is the plan. Now another lady wrote this one. She said, I found myself in this glorious mansion, high, high up, and they had the most beautiful gardens and perfectly kept. And a man and a woman left in a white car, and someone said to me, Give me two names, and their names of two relatives of mine. But I knew that it was you who had left, and I also knew that you would return. Now I have no memory whatsoever of what transpired between knowing that it was you who left and that you would return, but I awoke, saying, Now I know that I have experienced what Neville said that I would. Then my throat was parched as though a flame, and I went and got myself a nice cold drink of water, went back to bed, and had this dream. I'm in a department store, and there I am with all these Bibles for brides, Bibles given out for weddings, and in a strange way all the brides were dressed in their bridal white gowns and the department store supplied the grooms. They were all being married by proxy, and the department store supplied all the grooms that they may have a wedding picture taken with the groom supplied by the department store. Then I turned to one, and speaking to her, she said she's going to Paris. And then I said to her, I'm getting married next month. Well, this vision that you had, my dear, 
is a beautiful vision because, as you're told in Scripture, the book of Isaiah, your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. So that what you said is the perfect symbol of what the depth of our own being revealed to you, that you will have union with the Lord, and union with the Lord means that that which is in you, like an egg, will be fertilized, and then it will erupt within you, and the whole thing said of Jesus Christ will unfold within you, and you will be he. So I can say you had the perfect vision. Then another lady wrote, So I took my son into the backyard, and here was this fish pond that I had. It wasn't yet stocked with fish, but with clear water and about 12 inches deep. And in it was a little shaggy white dog lying in the water with its little black nose right above the water. I took the dog out and dried it off and took it into the house. And it romped and played all over the place. And then I missed it. And searching for it, I went back into the yard. And here was the dog in the pool again. But this time when I walked by, it wagged its tail as though, leave me here. I like being here. And it was quite satisfied to be submerged in the water, minus the nose above. But the tail wagged as though it was happy to be in the water. Well, may I say to you, in the Bible, we speak of stone, the water, and the wine. The stone is the literal story, the allegory. And man must discover the fictitious nature and character of a story. And when he discovers the fictitious character of the whole story in Scripture and then learns its meaning, he has found water. He has struck that rock like a Moses and water flowed out of it. Now the first miracle or sign in the book of John is the turning of water into wine. And so you're told, fill the stone jars with water. And then they draw it out of the stone jars. That water that was in the stone jar, it was wine. Perfect wine, lovely wine. So first we have a story, and man takes the story and accepts the story literally. And so he goes through life with the literal meaning, or the stone. When he discovers the fictitious character of the story, and then it reveals itself to him, the true meaning, he has the psychological water. Now the little dog is the symbol of faith. Your faith is now in the psychological meaning of these great truths. If you apply what you know, you will convert it into wine. If you apply it, if you will take what you now know, that imagination creates reality, and dare to imagine that you are now what you would like to be, then you are turning this water into wine. As told us in the book of Genesis, when Jacob brought the flock into the field, the well was covered with the stone, and he rolled the stone away and watered his flock, and then he put the stone back again. He didn't turn it into wine, but he did withdraw water. But a stone covered it and hid the view of the water. So the story is told to man, because it's a parable. The whole thing is a parable. The whole thing is an allegory. And if you would take it as actual, as factual and not as what it really is, the most wonderful parable in the world, well, then you'll never use your imagination to extract from that stone the water. Therefore, you cannot feed the flock. But if you can actually get from any story in scripture its psychological meaning and tell it to the world as when Isaac brings his son and Isaac is blind and can't see and he has two sons, 
One is called Esau and one is called Jacob. And Jacob covers himself in the skins of a goat to give himself the feeling of hair. For the first one was Esau, and Esau was hairy all over. And so when Jacob deceived his father into believing that he was Esau, Isaac gave him his blessing. So you take the story, and as I stand here now, reason tells me that I am not where I would like to be, that I am not the man that I really desire to be. So I shut out what reason is suggesting. I deny everything that reason dictates. I close my eyes to the facts of life, the obvious things, and I clothe myself mentally in all that I would like to be. I imagine that people see me as they would see me if I were the man that I want to be. I imagine that I'm actually standing where I would stand if I were that, and that I'm actually doing all the things I would do, normally and naturally. If what I am assuming were really true, if it were a fact, well, now when I do this, I'm clothing myself in the outer garments of naturalness of the facts. And when I open my eyes on the facts of life, it denies everything I've done. But I remember what I did. I caught that precious moment. For there is that moment in each day that doubt cannot find, and his helpmates cannot find it. But the industrious find this moment, and so become the industrious. You find this moment and you clothe yourself in all the lovely things that you want to be in this world, and having done it, you cannot break the spell. Open your eyes upon the facts of the world, and the facts will deny everything that you did. But you're told in Scripture that Isaac, having done it, having given the blessing to that moment, he couldn't take it back. He could not retract it. And so when Esau comes into the world and tells his father, but you've been deceived. First of all, he took from me my birthright. Now he's taking from me my blessing. He's rightly named. You named him Jacob, which means he supplants. He's a supplanter. But the father, father Isaac said, even though he came through deceit and deceived me into believing that he was Esau, I've given him your blessing and I cannot take it back. So that moment cannot be called back. It's on its way and it will move towards that, or towards what? The fulfillment of itself. And when it appears in this world, suddenness is only the emergence of that hidden continuity. So it was moving, unseen by the world, and suddenly it erupts in the world. But having remembered what I did, I can relate now that spiritual cause, the thing I did, unseen by others, to the thing seen now, that the whole vast world will share with me. So in your case, my dear, having seen the little dog, which is the symbol of Caleb, or the hound of faith, the one that goes with him, goes with Jehoshua, across the river into the promised land, no one else could go. So you walk in faith in this, and the day will come you will turn it all into wine. In other words, you will find yourself fulfilling scripture. The whole thing will unfold within you. Now we told you last Monday the story of Moses, and that he did not cross into the promised land, but Jehoshua went over. You may not be familiar with scripture, but Jehoshua's original name was Oshia, as told us in the book of Numbers. You'll find that in the 13th chapter, the 16th verse of Numbers, and Moses called Oshia, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. So when you take the prefix J, 
and put it before Oshua. You turn Oshua, which means Savior or Salvation, into he, by, into he by whom Jehovah will save. So it becomes that creative power that actually, I would say, fertilizes what Moses represented. Moses represented the pattern man. See that you make everything according to the pattern, as it's being shown you on the mountain. So here you're seeing everything clearly. That is a pattern. Don't alter one little thing. Make it just as it's shown you on the mountain. But I can't go in. That is the egg. The perfect egg. That's the ovum. But an egg remains just an egg until fertilized. It must be fertilized by the sperm. So that sperm must penetrate the surface of the egg. It leaves no hole, either before or after penetration. And no one understands how it happens, because no one knows. It's all imagination. Okay, so there we have part one of two of Neville Goddard's undated lecture titled Every Natural Effect. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. And I will see you guys in the next episode for part two of Every Natural Effect. Have a wonderful day.